Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. And our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, new developments in the Dave Ramsey story and Gospel for Asia has an update as well. We also look at Beth Moore. She blew up the internet with her decision to leave the Southern Baptist Church. We begin today with the latest from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Yeah, the leadership of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries announced plans to lay off more than half its staff, 60%, and to reboot the organization to support victims of abuse. Uh, Sarah Davis, the CEO of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, issued a statement on Wednesday, and it said this, RZIM cannot, indeed should not, continue to operate as an organization in its present form, nor do we believe that we can merely rename the organization and move forward with business as usual. That, we are convinced, is not right for numerous reasons. And it's important to note that Sarah Davis is also the daughter of Ravi Zacharias. Yeah, that's right. And she told staffers the ministry had lost significant financial support uh, since the release of findings from an investigation into allegations of misconduct involving Ravi Zacharias, who died uh, about a year ago in May of 2020 of cancer. The investigation found credible evidence of a long pattern of abusive behavior by Ravi Zacharias, including coercing massage therapists at a spa he co-owned to perform sex acts. So, Ron, I know that you've been following this story for quite a long time. Are there any positive developments? Well, I think there's both good and bad here. The good news is that the ministry seems to understand the seriousness of the situation. After the release of the original report, the Miller and Martin report, RZIM's board, whose members still remain anonymous, I should add, decided to stop accepting donations. That was a good step. Uh, The nonprofit hired guidepost solutions to investigate RZIM's culture and practice that's a good step as well. And uh, Sarah Davis made a point of saying that the departing staff would get a severance package and would not have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So what's the bad news here? Well, the 60% of the RZIM staff that got laid off are likely those in pretty junior positions who had nothing to do with the scandals and likely uh, don't know anything either about what was going on. In my view, the senior leadership of RZIM effectively just created a new class of victims in this scandal. But perhaps more importantly, RZIM still hasn't released its uh, latest financial statements or its Form 990, or as I said earlier, even the names of the members of the board. So we don't know who's making these decisions or if they're the same people who enabled the bad behavior of Ravi Zacharias in the first place. Uh, So 
these attempts to save the ministry are, at least in my view, somewhat misguided. At a minimum, they're certainly self-serving. The assets should be distributed to others who can use them for God's glory. Now, I will note that Sarah Davis said that the new organization would be a grant-making organization. And if what she means by that is that it will exist only long enough to liquidate all these assets in an orderly way, then, you know, that could work. But if the same people are going to be doing the same things under a different name, well, that's not good at all. Warren, the other big news for this week, at least in terms of page views on the Ministry Watch site, is the announcement by Beth Moore that she is leaving the Southern Baptist Church. Yeah, for nearly three decades, Beth Moore has been uh, the very model of a modern Southern Baptist, you might say. Uh, She loves Jesus and loves the Bible and has dedicated her life to teaching others why they need both in their lives. Millions of evangelical Christians, especially Christian women, have read her Bible studies and flocked to hear her speak at stadium-style events where Moore delves pretty deeply into biblical passages. Along the way, I should add that she's made tens of millions of dollars for herself and for Lifeway, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. But she announced this week, as you said, that she would be leaving the SBC. She says that she's still a Baptist, but she can no longer identify with the Southern Baptist Convention itself. And the story we published seemed to lay a lot of the responsibility for the rift on politics. Yeah, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks that know Beth Moore or are pretty familiar with this situation. Most of them have uh, agreed to talk to me off the record, but I can say this, that this situation is pretty complicated. There are a lot of sort of uh, what you might call forces at work here, but I, I think you're right. Politics played a key role. Beth Moore has been vocal in her criticism of Donald Trump. She said that his behavior towards women was unconscionable, and she criticized Christians who were willing to not just look the other way, but actually defend his behavior because they liked his politics. Uh, That put her at odds with millions of Southern Baptists. Many of them had no problem telling her so or telling their pastors so, and she's been dropped from a lot of church curricula around the country. Because of her opposition to Trump and her outspokenness in confronting sexism and nationalism in the evangelical world, she's also had to endure uh, a lot of name-calling. People have called her liberal and woke, even though she's continued throughout it all to hold tightly to Um, core Christian doctrines such as the inerrancy of Scripture, the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity, the resurrection, and other core Christian doctrines. Still, churches that had previously used her material started to abandon her. Yeah, they did. And when Moore spoke out about Trump, she got all this pushback, some of which I've already alluded to. Her book sales plummeted, as did tickets to her events. Uh, Her criticism of Trump was seen as a betrayal. And from fiscal 17 to fiscal 2019, Living Proof, which is the name of uh, her nonprofit organization, lost about $1.8 million. Then allegations of abuse and misconduct began to surface among Southern Baptists themselves in 2016, and Moore also became increasingly concerned about her denomination's tolerance of leaders who had put up with this sexual abuse and disrespect of women all these years. Now, Warren, we have a lot of stories to cover, but this one is really important. So how can our listeners learn more? 
Yeah, we've got a long story by Bob uh, Smetanya on our website that is uh, deeply reported and goes into a lot of the issues that I've discussed, plus some others, the financial issues, concerns about race, for example, um, surrounding this whole Beth Moore controversy. I really recommend that our listeners that want to go deep should go to ministrywatch.com and read that story. It's on the front page. Well, up next, more controversy from Dave Ramsey's organization. Yeah, Dave Ramsey's uh, organization, if you've been following our coverage, uh, has been in the news. Uh, You'll know that a part of the controversy came from the fact that Dave Ramsey uh, had fired a female staff member who was living with her boyfriend. A lot of Christians actually affirmed that decision, but he chose not to fire a senior male staff member, Chris Hogan, who had been involved in multiple affairs, including at least one with a Ramsey Solutions co-worker. That opened them up to charges of hypocrisy. But now that staff member has in fact been fired. Yeah, Chris Hogan, who was once viewed as a successor to Dave Ramsey, announced in a video on Wednesday of this week that he was no longer with the company. And these are some of the words that he used on the video. Recently, it has come to light that I've done some things personally that are not in line with Ramsey Solutions. And as a result, I'm no longer a team member at Ramsey. I'm sorry for the harm that has been caused. The company also said that it was deeply disappointed and in what it called Hogan's recent admissions. Uh, This week, new information came to light that Chris Hogan has recently done some things personally that are not in line with Ramsey Solutions' core values. This is from a statement issued by the company. As a result of his current actions and behavior, Chris Hogan is no longer a team member at Ramsey or a Ramsey personality. Now, that Ramsey personality part of it was pretty important because some people think that that's why he had had escaped uh, consequences for so long. Hogan had written a book called Everyday Millionaires. He had hosted a popular radio program on his own on the uh, Ramsey platform, as well as appearing as a frequent guest on Dave Ramsey's show. Uh, he was also a frequent presence at the Ramsey Solutions events held all over the country. Well, and let's take a look at one more story before the break, and that's the story of Gospel for Asia. That ministry has been embroiled in controversy for years, but this week, things went to a whole new level. Yeah, Gospel for Asia is a U.S.-based ministry, but it does most of its work in India. Uh, income tax authorities in India this week confiscated what they called the estate of Bishop K.P. Yohannan, who is the founder of Gospel for Asia. And in India, they operate as the Believer's Church or the Believer's Eastern Church. Now, this new action comes four months after the country's Ministry of Finance raided the church's office is looking for evidence of tax fraud. The income tax department seized about 2,000 acres of land um, with the Cheravali estate, which is in the southern part of India. If any of you know India, it's in the Kerala state, which is down in the southern part of the country, with an ongoing um, money laundering case still pending. And Warren, I understand that you visited that estate. Yeah, I have. Uh, I went to India uh, probably eight or nine years ago with Gospel for Asia. This was before a lot of this stuff, in fact, any of this stuff had come out. Uh, At that time, I will tell you that I had a lot of respect for K.P. Yohannan and Gospel for Asia. I thought they were doing a pretty remarkable thing. And this estate that 
um, that the Indian tax authorities achieved was really not, uh, you know, just a home. In fact, uh, K.P. Yohannan only had a, a little apartment there. Mostly it was a Bible college and a seminary, along with the headquarters for the uh, ministry in the southern part of the country. So, it, you know, it's a um, really kind of a tragic situation because what I saw of Gospel for Asia in the country was that it had planted thousands of churches and had seen literally millions of people uh, come to know Christ over the years. But um, the ministry's financial mismanagement is now coming to the forefront. It was first exposed in 2015 whenever um, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability terminated Gospel for Asia's uh, membership after a review of a review of its practices. And then in 2019, Gospel for Asia settled a $37 million case in the United States over the misuse of funds. I should also add that K.P. Yohannan has been summoned to appear before the attacks authorities of India, uh, but he has so far failed to appear. He's currently believed to be living in the United States at the Gospel for Asia U.S. headquarters in Texas. Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, how children's ministries are getting creative during the COVID lockdown. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Now let's continue with the story that I promised before the break about how children's ministries are having to get creative to reach kids locked down due to the pandemic. Yeah, leave it to a children's minister uh, to get creative, to explain the Apostle Paul's spiritual transformation, for example, by making a video about the conversion of eggs, flour, sugar, and chocolate into brownies. Uh, And don't be surprised when the minister delivers the transformed treats to all the kids of the congregation at their homes during a pandemic. Uh, and if that sounds pretty outrageous and amazing, well, that's exactly what Penny White did, that and a whole lot more. Penny White serves as the children's minister for a 250-member church, the Conejo Valley Church of Christ in Thousand Oaks, California. That's about 40 miles northwest of Los Angeles. The pandemic has both upended and, in some cases, reinvented uh, the form and shape of ministry in churches all across the country. They've uh, learned to be virtual, socially distanced, and masked, but they're also looking for new ways to reach out to kids with more creativity and more urgency. Uh, Penny White, in fact, called it learning while you're running. (laughs) Yes. For example, before COVID-19, Penny White had never even edited a video. Yeah, she said that she now produces 20 
25 to 30 minute video segments every week with elements similar to an in-person worship service, such as songs and prayers and a story. Occasionally, she enlists her husband, Jim, and her son, Jonathan, who's a student at Pepperdine University, to dress up as David and Goliath or maybe David and Samuel or Peter and Andrew. And instead of Vacation Bible School or VBS, they are now doing QBS. Yeah, Quarantine Bible Study, they're calling it. But for all the innovation, it's still the connection with the kids that matters most. Yeah, it really is. You know, the new buzzword for this kind of work is connection over content. The content is important, but it doesn't need to be perfect and professional. Uh, It just needs to make a connection with the kids. In fact, there's a whole lot of off-the-shelf content that you can buy that is slick and professional. But sometimes the most important thing to do is simply open up a Zoom call and go around the room or the screen, you might say, and let people share what's happening to them. That sounds like great advice. Now, Warren, our next story involves the sale of a significant and iconic property in Northern Virginia as the headquarters of Prison Fellowship Ministries. Yeah, Prison Fellowship uh, has agreed to sell its Lansdowne, Virginia campus, that's, by the way, is just about 40 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., to Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, both organizations made this announcement last Friday. Uh, the Christian nonprofit, uh, which serves prisoners, uh, former prisoners and their families, did not disclose the sale price, but it did say that it was an 11.3-acre campus. Uh, Prison Fellowship had already been partnering uh, with ADF for a number of years. ADF, uh, many of our listeners may know, is a nonprofit legal organization currently headquartered in Arizona, which uh, protects religious freedom, free speech, parental rights, and the sanctity of life. Uh, they've been working together for at least two years on some joint projects. And as part of this agreement, Prison Fellowship will continue to lease space in the building for at least two more years. And I understand that you have a long relationship with this property. Yeah, well, that's right. And it's not just me. I mean, a lot of uh, folks that are involved in Christian ministry are pretty familiar with this property because Chuck Colson, when he was alive, he died back in 2012, uh, really had what what I sometimes call convening power. He would often just send out an email to 50 people and say, hey, I'd like to you know, get us together and talk about a certain issue. And um, he did that a number of times over the years at this Lansdowne property. I should also say that there is a Uh, a guest house that has about 12 uh, little apartments in it, really just more like hotel rooms, um, that were used by ministry leaders. I've stayed in there probably 20 or 30 times over the years myself. It was just a place of hospitality that Prison Fellowship was very open about. And of course, over the years, that meant that that property became pretty well known to a lot of uh, ministry leaders. And uh, it's just really... In, in some ways, uh, it's a shame to see this uh, this uh, property pass away from the hands of Prison Fellowship. But on the other hand, it's really great that it's going to ADF, which is another great uh, ministry. And, and, no, and no doubt, though, it's kind of the end of an era. Jim Ackerman, who is the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship, said that more than two 
two-thirds of the organization's staff, even before the pandemic, had been working from home, and that large campus that they had was just no longer necessary. In fact, he went on to say this, for the last five years, Prison Fellowship has become an increasingly virtual organization with more people operating closer to our in-prison work. And ADF President and CEO Mike Farah said that the organization is eager uh, to move from Arizona to Washington, D.C., which is kind of closer to their work. They argue a lot of cases before the Supreme Court, and uh, being in Washington is going to be good for ADF. And he also paid tribute to Chuck Colson, saying that he was a strong advocate for freedom of conscience and religion. Well, while we're talking about Prison Fellowship, let's hit another story that they're involved with. Yeah, Prison Fellowship has joined forces with criminal justice and prosecutorial organizations to support efforts to reduce the disparities in sentencing between black Americans and and white Americans. Uh, The End the Disparity campaign is a partnership with such organizations as Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and uh, they recently focused on what is an 18-to-1 ratio in federal sentencing for distributing crack cocaine versus cocaine in its powdered form. Advocates are pushing for a one-to-one ratio instead. Warren, I can understand why this is an important issue, but why is a Christian ministry involved? Well, according to, again, Jim Ackerman, who's the president and CEO of Prison Fellowship, uh, he said this, we think this is so important an issue and that action is needed now to correct this long-standing injustice. He noted that the vast majority of people that are convicted of possession of crack cocaine are black. They're the ones that get the strong, the heavy sentences. A lot of the people that are convicted of powdered cocaine are white and more affluent. And they don't get very strong sentences typically. And Jim Ackerman also appealed to Scripture, to Proverbs. He says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. And Ackerman said that these disparities in cocaine sentencing are unfair to all Americans, but especially to African Americans. Now, when our next story concerns a charismatic prophet who now says that he's leaving the ministry because of his false prophecies about Donald Trump. Yeah, Jeremiah Johnson is his name. Uh, the self-described prophet uh, who faced backlash from fellow evangelical Christians uh, after he apologized for prophesying that former President Donald Trump would be reelected. Uh, he says he's going to end his ministry, Jeremiah Johnson Ministries. Uh, the announcement, he said, came after much prayer and the clear direction of the Lord. It also comes after an abrupt two-week hiatus, which was in the middle of a YouTube series, and that series was called I Was Wrong. Uh, Johnson said during a series that Uh, which he described as a money loser for his ministry, that apologizing wasn't enough. I believe that it was a tremendous mistake um, what he had done, and also to take the next four years to argue and debate and cause division and grow even more prideful about each of us in our various positions. Uh, Johnson had built an audience on social media as one of the very first evangelicals to take Trump's candidacy seriously back in 2015. Warren, we're going to take another break here. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have our closing lightning round of news briefs, plus news about evangelist Luis Palau after this short message. Hello, 
everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we usually reserve the last segment of the program as a lightning round for briefs and what's new at Ministry Watch. So let's start the clock. What's up first? Well, the Federal Trade Commission, along with 46 agencies from 39 states in the District of Columbia, stopped a massive telemarketing operation that hit 67 million consumers with 1.3 billion allegedly deceptive fundraising calls. Uh, Most of the calls uh, were illegal robocalls. And though no Christian organizations were involved in this scandal, I wanted to highlight it, and we posted a story about it on our website, to highlight uh, the point that you should never give money over the phone to someone that you don't know. Now, you may be asking who would even do that in the first place, but in this case, the defendants collected more than $110 million using these deceptive solicitations. And up next, this week marks the one-year anniversary of the COVID pandemic, and World Vision and Wheaton College are doing something to mark the milestone. Yeah, World Vision and the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College have declared March 11, which is Thursday, today, the day we're recording this, Natasha, though it'll be a day later, of course, when most people hear it, the one-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring COVID-19 a pandemic. They're calling it National COVID-19 Day. They've launched an online platform at nationalcovid19day.com where people can share their grief, come together virtually, and even volunteer. It's a place where survivors can talk about their experience or those left behind can remember the 500,000 victims of COVID in the United States alone. And while we're on the subject, a new study finds that philanthropic response to COVID has now topped $20 billion. Yeah, at least $20 billion. In fact, about $20.2 billion in global COVID uh, relief was made just by wealthy donors and foundations. Uh, That includes community foundations, corporate foundations, and corporate giving programs. That doesn't even count um, all the billions of dollars in smaller giving that has been done through churches and other uh, organizations over the years. So giving has remained strong this year, but there's been some concern about um, when it's safe to go back to church, perhaps there might be a downturn. But a new study says that that's not the case. Yeah, a study of about a thousand U.S. Protestant churchgoers found that 91% uh, said that they planned on returning to in-person worship when it was safe to do so. The study was from Lifeway Research, a nonprofit affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and it suggests that churchgoers are eager to return to pre 
pandemic worship practices. Though many churches are already meeting in person, attendance has typically been smaller because of social distancing. In January, for example, about 51% of churchgoers said that they didn't attend any in-person services. About 83% said that they watched a live stream of a church service instead. And who do you have in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, this week we got Mercy Corps. Uh, they began in 1979 to alleviate suffering, poverty, and oppression. And over the past 50 years, they've grown dramatically. Revenue now approaches $500 million, making it one of the largest Christian ministries in the world. And we take a deep dive into Mercy Corps' finances this week. You can find that at the Ministry Watch website. And who are you featuring in the Ministries Making a Difference column? Well, Bible Study Fellowship is one of those ministries. They were, they've were they launched a new Bible study for the period of Lent that we're in right now through its free Word Go app, uh, and that program is called The Savior's Love. And by the way, we also note that BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, is growing despite the pandemic and now has more than 350 thousand members on six continents involved in Bible study groups. And I should also note that China Aid, which was founded by Chinese dissident and Christian activist Bob Fu, has co-signed a letter calling for brands, retailers, and individuals to denounce businesses that profit from China's forced labor system. The Chinese Communist Party is said to be detaining somewhere between one and one point eight million minorities, mostly Uyghurs, Turks, and Muslims in detention or re-education camps, and they force them to produce products for export. These products include cotton, clothing, electronics, toys, and a whole lot more. A recent BBC report told of testimony from former Uyghur detainees who described sexual abuse and torture. Now, China Aid is in the business of doing this sort of thing. They expose human rights violations within China, and they also advocate for religious freedom and human rights there. And our final story involves the evangelist Luis Palau. Yeah, Luis Palau uh, has gone into hospice care after taking a turn for the worst in his three-year battle with lung cancer. Uh, Luis Palau's family said in a February 26 blog post that after meeting with doctors, they had reached a decision to stop all treatment. Uh, the statement said, we don't know exactly how much time we have left with dad, but the end seems near. Uh, and he, they also added that that is, in fact, a blessing. The family said that Luis Palau has been unable to tolerate the medications and the treatment and went home last week to rest more comfortably and spend time with his family, including fulfilling a final wish to spend one-on-one -on -one time with each of his grandchildren. Uh, the family went on to thank uh, Luis Palau's supporters for their encouragement, prayers, and friendship, and invited them actually to send notes of encouragement. Uh, the statement concluded in this way. We're taking as much time as possible with dad each day to read the emails and notes we receive. Thank you for your love and prayers. We are all at peace. We serve a good God who loves us beyond compare. Those are wonderful words. So true. 
The producers for today's program are Rich Rosalind, Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pritzer, Yonat Shimran, Paul Clolery, Emily Miller, Adele Banks, Cheryl Monbacon, Ann Steich, and Bob Smetania. And thank you to our friends at the Nonprofit Times and Religion Unplugged for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.